Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. So look, I've got like under a dozen really smart and talented people here, and all they want to do is make great podcasts for you, tell you great stories, and find things out, investigate things that nobody knows, and then tell you all about those things. Why wouldn't you support something like that for $5 a month? It is a no-brainer. Click on the link in your show notes, go to canadalandshow.com slash join, and we will immediately install on your device in moments a golden premium ad-free feed of this podcast. Go do it. Paul Wells, senior writer at McLean's, joining me from Ottawa. Welcome back. Hi. Paul, today we're going to talk about the mega-rich socialite who lured teenage girls to his tropical retreat and used his network of powerful connections to evade justice and media attention for years, all about the rape charges against him. Nope, not talking about that guy. I'm talking about his Canadian equivalent. And damn it, Paul, whether mainstream media types like you want to or not, we are going to talk about We Charity for once. Well, thank God, because, yes, we've been shunning that story. Yeah, yeah, well, too bad for you. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you all by Alex Donaldson, Spencer Winson, Adrian Wells, Matthew McKinnon, Emma Rogers, Dominic, Emily Ower, and Megan. My name is Megan, and I work behind the scenes in Canada's theaters. I support Canada Land because of the clarity they provide in our murky media landscape. 
The current season of Commons is particularly important, and I applaud the whole team for continuing to shine light in Canada's dark corners. Okay, let's talk about we. Yay. Paul Wells, I would like to begin by saying a few words in praise of the CBC. <laughs> sure. Why do you sound skeptical? No, a Janice McGregor, who's been reporting uh, this story out for the CBC, had a story that was filled with really big revelations, any one of which could have been a kind of a sensational headline. The only thing I'll say negatively about this piece is whoever wrote the headline just knows how to downplay and, and bury some really big revelations. The headline is Charities Question Whether We Run Student Program Would Have Been Worth the Money. Did you read this article, Paul? I did indeed, yeah. Uh, and it fills up a big part of the story, which is all of us, of course, have been treating we as essentially a political entity, but it is essentially a benevolent charity or, you know, that's the flag it flies under. And there are people in that sector. And so this answers the question, what do they think of it? Yeah, they don't like it, or at least a lot of them really don't like it. And uh, that was one of the main things is when you get into the, the guts of this, as the CBC did, as to how what this meant for charities. And they paint a picture of like all of these charities are getting hit hard from the pandemic. You know, donations are drying up, live events, all the fundraising stuff like it's really bad across the sector. And here comes we with almost a billion dollars from the government and they've got to spend it quickly and they're looking for other charities to work with them. But here's what you got to do. In your moment of need, we says to you, sign right here. We'll pay you if you can like use your network to get us some volunteers. But here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to let us kind of like put our brand, our logo over your logo. You're going to have to go out there and spread the we logo to your people. You're going to have to go out and promote this program, which we kind of own this program. We get to promote this program using your brand. And there was a gag order. You're not allowed to say anything negative about this deal. And, you know, charities like anybody else, like the branding, the public relations, like this essentially, it reads like a major power grab whereby like we gets to colonize every other charity that has to play with them in this and, and sort of kiss the ring if they want in to these government funds. Yeah, there's constant, fairly heavy handed reputation management involved in anything that, that happens around we. And also constant secrecy. I mean, this goes back to the government saying that uh, we had been chosen through an open and transparent process about which they would provide no details. We claiming in those full page ads uh, at the beginning of the week that the public service has openly said that they had selected we and yet no public servant has even been permitted to take questions on that matter. Yeah, It's the contrary of the truth that went out over the Kielberger's names. And then this, yeah, you like you can help us meet our absurdly ambitious recruiting targets if you make it look like we've done all the work and you say nice things about us. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that detail about like in their apology letter, like, you know, Mark and Craig Kilberger have yet to give an interview, answer any questions to media, but they bought space in newspapers with this full page ad. And in there, like, you know, Hey, let's set the record straight. There was a major factual error that you caught Paul. And I, I missed it. I caught it when you wrote about this that they claim that the public service has actually spoken out and confirmed what the PMO has said. That has not happened yet. Uh, the CBC piece alerted my attention to something I didn't know about, which is that the target of this volunteer program was to get 100,000 youth volunteers. Each volunteer was going to get like 1000 to $5,000 for their volunteering. I don't know if it's volunteering if you get paid, but let's park that for now. Mm -hmm. Let's say that they got 100,000 volunteers very quickly as they intended to. And let's say that every one of those volunteers got the full $5,000, which certainly they would not max out, but let's say they did. 
That would only account for $500 million of the $912 million contract. Yeah. Who gets the rest? There is no way to do the math that adds up to all the money being used. And that's a problem. What I still don't get is I believe that at some point the work agreement, essentially the contract between the federal government and we, never consummated, will come to light. Yeah. And it will have embarrassing details. For the life of me, I don't understand why the federal government doesn't make it public right now, right? Because the day it comes out, it'll be worse. I guess that's true. But like, let's think about how much worse, because, you know, it's interesting how figures enter into the media, you know, narrative and we have kind of like settled science. Like these are the basics of this scandal or this controversy. We was going to get $19.5 million. That's been repeated ad nauseum. Sometimes people say no less than $19.5 million, but essentially in everyone's mind, we is getting $19.5 million had this gone through. In fact, I was reminded that $19.5 million was what we would get if they signed up 20,000 volunteers. I can do some basic algebra, and what I suspect we're going to find when we see that full deal is that the more volunteers we signed up, the more they got paid. And that suggests almost $100 million of possible benefit for this charity in this contract. Yeah. I uh, Carry the three. I'm not doing the math. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the sort of political math. At what point did this look like a good idea, you know? Yeah, yeah. Basically, in the prime minister's office, in any prime minister's office from now to the end of time, there should be people who are paid to sit there. And if anyone says, come on, this will be so great, they have to start looking for reasons why it won't be great. You know, they need to red team some of this stuff because clearly their instincts are reliably opposite to what, what would help them get through the day in a healthy manner, like the Agacon vacation. I still, I'm going to, I'm going to go to my grave wondering who thought it would be a great idea to let the prime minister sneak off to a, a billionaire secret Ireland, you know, and this too. I mean, and then we'll claim that the bureaucracy told us to do it. This deepens an increasingly aggravated relationship between the public service and the government of Canada. And normally you think that liberals and bureaucrats get along like a house on fire, but bureaucrats are starting to notice that every time the government gets in trouble, they blame the bureaucrats. And yet the government doesn't let the bureaucrats do the bureaucratic function of designing up these programs and, and doing due diligence. And, you know, so what's the point of being a public servant in relation with this government? Because all they're going to do is they're going to give all the good, the fun stuff to their friends, and then they're going to blame you. <laughs> you know, but Paul, like, I think that it's no more complicated or even nefarious than it appears. And it was sort of evidenced in, in Justin Trudeau's apology. It's sort of like with the Aga Khan thing, like there's just this conception of like, Hey, I'm a good guy. I've got good friends. People like to do good things for me. I'm trying to do good things for the country. You know, my whole family works with them. They do great stuff elsewhere in the world. I do great stuff. I'll give them some money. Like, wh what's the problem here? Even as he was apologizing, the prime minister was sort of saying, uh, you know, hey, I was just trying to help the kids. And, you know, we were just trying to do it quickly because of this pandemic. And he said, you know, we got very creative. I got into politics to help people shape their country for the better. I've been youth critic. Uh, and youth minister for our government. And every step of the way, I've tried to create opportunities for young people to serve. During this unprecedented pandemic, we got very creative with a range of programs designed to help Canadians, to help families, to help businesses, and yes, to help young people. Which is my favorite thing to say, like, while you're apologizing, like, I am sorry, you know, I'm sorry I'm so creative, you know, I'm sorry that when I'm trying to help the kids, I'm so creative at it, I guess I'll follow your red tape in the future. And what I want to ask you is, I think he would walk away 
if it holds up, that all of this was in service of a charity doing charitable things that's on the up and up. Kate Bain is the managing director of Charity Intelligence. And the CBC had her on The Current the other morning. Mm-hmm. And she's taken a close look at Wee's financials. And I've spoken to her since. There was a period where they were actually losing points with Charity Intelligence because they were not sharing their financials. They had a good rating uh, in terms of their transparency. And then that rating suffered because they were just like not coughing up some of their financials. And then she got a look and her team got a look at the financials. And what she found was what she called backwash. Uh, and she said it was backwash, uh, she told me, of a magnitude they hadn't seen before. And the way that she describes backwash this is when, you know, their for-profit company is supposed to be paying the charity and making money for the charity, but it went the other way. What we know about Me to We is that it does an awful lot of business with We Charity. And Me to We's business says that since it was founded, it has given $20 million in support to We Charity. Now, what is less well-known is how much money We Charity gives to Me To We. Over the last 10 years, We Charity has given and paid Me To We $11 million. And in the last two years, 2018 and 2019, 7% and 8% of We Charity's total revenues have flowed to Me To We the private business of the Kilbergers. Paul, we are tugging at this thread as well. Uh, so Victor Lee is the chief financial officer of We Charity. He also happens to be the chief financial officer of Me to We, their for-profit business, and the equivalents in the U.S. There's an issue there that Charity Intelligence has seized upon that, that you should not have the same person doing all of those things. There's another issue that uh, Canada Land discovered because on his profile page on We Charity's website, there's a Q&A by way of introduction, where they ask him, what qualifications do you have to manage the finances of a global organization? And he answers, I am professionally certified in accounting in four different countries, Canada, the US, UK, and China. So we checked to see if that's true, and we could find no evidence that he is certified in the United States, no evidence of him being certified in the UK. There are public databases of certified accountants in both of those countries. He's not on them. We are not as confident of our research abilities on the Chinese database, but you know what? We just put it all to the WE organization in a question. We can't find this guy's credentials, his certifications in the U.S., the U.K., or China. Can you just link us to his certification? And they couldn't. You know, they gave us a response that, okay, well, he's qualified anyhow. He's qualified to, to be the CFO for the, the following reasons, but they did not provide the documentation that you'd, you'd think they would have. My question to you, Paul, is, If this controversy, call it a scandal, deepens and it turns out that what Justin Trudeau was apologizing for is not simply a conflict of interest with a charity that was doing wonderful charity things, but a charity that has bigger problems than that, does that change the calculus for Justin Trudeau? I think I'm supposed to say yes. I'm not sure it does because to some extent he's already taken the hit, right? Like everything they've already done seems to me irresponsible public administration at best. And he's already come out and said, I'm sorry. And so Canadians divide into the habitual camps. There's the people who are inclined to defend this prime minister and say, well, what do you want? He's sorry. He was trying to do good. You know, uh, all of your carping has just ruined the summer jobs of 37,000 volunteers. And then the rest of us say, man, it's weird that this prime minister keeps coming up with 
you know, baroque reasons to get into trouble. You know, given this much, at least at least Trudeau's scandals or controversies or whatever are uh, fun. <laughs> like it's not like a real estate deal, blah blah. You know, yeah. it's they're building a secret second mansion at Harrington Lake. You know, I mean. <laughs> Like it's it's he, it was all going his way. He was like he was like this like golden retriever released into this big green meadow of beautiful poles. Everyone thought he was doing a great job, and you're like, go run wild, little doggy. There is in the corner like a pile of shit, but just run anywhere else. And then it just the dog just beelines for for the poop, and then just comes back like, yeah, I've rolled around in it. What am I gonna do? And everyone just says, ah, you you silly doggy. And, but I'll tell you, if you ask 100 people what the original sin of the Trudeau government is, you're going to get 100 answers. Mine is they constantly congratulate themselves for being open and transparent, and they are just not ever open and transparent. A question to this government does not ever get a simple prompt answer, not right. ever, not once, right? Mm-hmm. And these guys, they can't begin to comprehend that that is the root of all of their difficulties. It's, you know... The SNC stuff. If we were having these meetings with retired Supreme Court justices and uh, fancy lobbyists and stuff on the grass in front of the House of Commons with cameras present, right? Would people think it was a little hinky? Then maybe let's not do it, right? If it is so important, if it's crucial to our, brand, our marketing exercise to claim that this was an open and transparent process, and it was not an open and transparent process, then maybe that's a problem. Right. And this doesn't I'm obviously a little uh, overcome with grief at all of this. The thought that this is a problem does not ever occur to them. And when you tell them it's a problem, they wonder what you're talking about. Right. Well, they need that guy in the room or they need that person. They need that salty ex-journalist who just spoils the party and says, wait a minute. You know, they need they need a Paul Wells, you know, if if you're ever thinking about a second career. (laughs) As long as they take care to pay me through my social enterprise, then it'll be fine. (laughs) But which of Paul Wells entities is uh, listen You've got a pretty common reporter's complaint about this government, the lack of transparency. I've shared yeah. that. I have a different uh, complaint. It's not about the government. It's about like, you know, you mentioned the different camps that the pro Trudeau camps, n- nothing is going to phase them and they're feeling shaky and they're feeling threatened and they don't like this idea that their guy's taking the heat. And so I am now beset by like liberal supporting Twitter trolls and and I am now uh, dealing with people on the Internet. Some look like real humans, some not you know, I'm used to the other side. Now I'm getting, you know, people for like, I, I guess like capital L liberal Twitter is sure that Canada land is just gunning for Justin Trudeau. And I couldn't care less what the outcome of this is like really and truly it's just as a news story to me, but they're convinced that I have it in for this guy. And I have a message to the liberal party, Twitter advocates and trolls. You're nowhere near as good at this as the right wing. Like with the memes, with the conspiracy theories, with the abuse, you can't touch me. I'm battle hardened by this. Like, Paul, the conspiracy theories are either that Canada Land is a radical right wing rag, which is funny, or that I personally have some beef with Craig Kilberger because I read this one that he got a speaking gig that I wanted. That was an interesting, th- you know, they got to, you know, and uh, I just want to say, like, I feel your pain. I know, I know that you are concerned about the outcome of this, but. Do people not know me by now? Like, if you don't know me by now, if you thought that I had receipts in hand that somehow incriminated or didn't look good for Elizabeth May or Jagmeet Singh or Andrew Scheer, don't you think I would use those ones too? I mean, 
I'm not going to lie. Like, I have my preferences in terms of the policies and ideas of some of those people and others. I might even have preferences as to, like, I might like one of those politicians more than the others. But, Paul, please believe me. I like myself more. I like me more. And, and yeah. you know, me wants story. I'm going to run the story. It doesn't matter. I'm going to run the story. Paul, on this program of ours, we don't like to lose sight of the little things that should be bigger things. And so we have uh, duly noted. Why don't I start with the ongoing saga of the last great uh, city newspaper, the Toronto Star, which, you know, we heard that uh, this Nordstar company was going to purchase them. And then I had people within the Star saying, everyone's reporting that. Don't be so sure, you know, that hasn't passed all the, the goals that it has to pass. And it might be that somebody else comes forward. And in fact, somebody else came forward. And uh, the Sorbaras, a wealthy uh, Liberal Party family, they put in a bid. But it seems that all that did was drive up the price of Torstar marginally. And Nordstar Capital LP, with its conservative backing um, frontmen, that is the new owner, the soon-to-be owners of Torstar with a $60 million bid. For a company that I think, uh, I think I've been saying that it was worth a billion dollars. I think it might have been at its total height, closer to two, sold for $60 million. Yeah, it's the sad decline of a great media company. Um, mostly it's just been following the same trajectory as, as the media industry in general. A little bit the star has been hobbled by its sense of itself as a great media company, which has made it sluggish to adapt over the years. Like, it's good to see a bidding war. The scale of the bidding war is kind of small potatoes, you know, but... Every couple million dollars that goes into that organization, maybe if a, if a percentage of it goes into the newsroom, yeah, that'll be a good thing. Obviously, the big question is always, will the Atkinson principles, which position the star as a progressive left of center organization, will they be perpetuated or betrayed? And that's been an eternal question with the star through a couple of management changes and now more than a decade of speculation that at some point it's going to get rolled into post-media. and. Um, merged with the National Post, which would be like a matter-antimatter explosion of huge proportions. My preference is that, is that the star remain the star, but um, it's not immune to the forces that the whole news industry is, is facing. And um, my hunch is that if people buying the star are going to want it to remain the kind of paper that they grew up with. But the, the National Post rumor has been around for almost as long as there's been a National Post. Duly noted. Paul, what do you have? My duly noted is, of course, we adjacent. I was enjoying reading Andrew Coyne's latest column, which which puts the sticks to the prime minister uh, on, on this matter. And right in the middle of it, there's a sentence, the Globe and Mail is a we charity media partner. And then it goes back to the coin call. Mm -hmm. And this obligatory disclosure notice has been popping up in all Globe coverage of, of we. And my problem is that these things are called disclosure notices in the business. The idea is that if you've got some... Uh, business association that might color your coverage, you should let people know. But a disclosure notice is useless if it gives you no information that an ordinary person would comprehend. What is a We Charity Media Partner? What obligations does that impose on the globe? Does it pay We? Does We pay the globe? Can that agreement be rescinded? Why has it not been rescinded given that We won't answer globe reporters' questions? And this goes beyond this narrow case. Every time an organization, a news organization, is for whatever reason required to give information to its readers, it should do so in a way that makes it possible to understand what the hell you mean. <laughs> so the Globe 
insults its quality as a news organization when it puts that sentence in in ways that no reader can comprehend. That's a good point. And if people want to actually find out what that means, the partnership between the Globe and Mail and we, uh, we, we did a exhaustively investigated and reported story about the Kilberger's relationship with the press. You could find that on Canada Land's website. But I'll say this for the Globe and Mail. I agree that that's insufficient disclosure, at least it's disclosure. I don't believe that Post Media and its coverage of this has been disclosing that the Kilbergers are columnists for Post Media. I don't believe that the CBC in their coverage of this have been disclosing things like that they've worked with the Kilbergers on various projects through the years. Uh, Craig Kilberger was on Canada Reads. There's extensive relationship there as well. At least the Globe says something, but duly noted. One last thing, Paul, to duly note uh, from me. People are tired of the uh, 24-7 cable news uh, TV channel CP24 when a black person is a victim of gun violence, we get a picture of the victim huh. via their mugshot, if they happen to have one. And that is something that uh, Mira Miller of BlogTO has uh, has pointed out. People are, are, are sick of this because there is just such a unsubtle message to that, which is that the victim is a criminal and this isn't somebody who we value. It's not somebody you need to worry about. And it's, uh, I think, a media practice that very specifically um, is suffered by black Canadians and not, not other people so much. That's an excellent point. It's shameful behavior on the part of the news organization, and uh, it's duly noted. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Under investigation for rape and sex trafficking, Canadian multimillionaire Peter Nygaard is leaving his company following an FBI raid at his Manhattan headquarters. The number of women accusing Canadian fashion mogul Peter Nygaard of rape and sexual assault has grown. 
Dozens of women from Canada, the U.S., and the Bahamas have now come forward to accuse Peter Nygaard of sexual assault, including rape. Most of the allegations are from recent years, but the Fifth Estate has also uncovered cases that are decades old, including what you're about to hear from this woman. Paul, I will confess that sometimes a big news story breaks and there's just so much going on and it's such a big story that I, I just say, like, I'm going to sit this out and loop back later. And I don't know about you, but such was the Peter Nygaard expose. Were you following along as this came out? I was not. Um, I'm glad to catch up to it. It's an extraordinary story. It really is. And, you know, it's one of those ones that there were so many similar stories happening that uh, I think that the, the version of this that kind of landed biggest was the New York Times this past February when they wrote it up. But I'm going to go back further than that because um, we're learning about the origins of this. And I'm going to kind of tell an encapsulated version of this through the media coverage of it. Like, wh what is the first chance that people had to know that something was up with this Peter Nygaard guy, this uh, this this uh, garment industry millionaire out of Winnipeg. And that might have been 1996 in Winnipeg when the Winnipeg Free Press, their reporter Catherine Mitchell, she reported the fact that his company Nygaard paid about $20,000 to settle three sexual harassment complaints. And this had to do with things like frequently grabbing himself and uh, calling female employees into his office in a state of undress. So he sounds like a pig in this story. And then Catherine Mitchell gets a flood of tips in response. And one was from a woman in Denmark named Jonna Larson. And Larson sent Catherine Mitchell a detailed written account that Mitchell found completely credible in which she details her employment as a Nygaard employee and in which she documents her alleged rape by Peter Nygaard. And Catherine Mitchell way back in 96, prepares a blockbuster expose of Peter Nygaard. And then her publisher, her publisher gets a bunch of phone calls. And this has just come to light that the story was spiked when the Winnipeg Free Press's Rudy Redekop got this pressure and he described this to the Fifth Estate. He said there was a lot of external pressure from high-positioned Winnipeggers or business people that he refers to as Nygaard's compatriots and Winnipeg's kingpins. So Winnipeg's kingpins essentially spiked, they succeeded in spiking the story out of their fealty to Peter Nygaard. They thought that the Winnipeg Free Press was on a witch hunt. And Redekop says uh, that, yeah, we decided to kill it. Thought that maybe it was a sensationalist story that would be bad for Winnipeg. He says, that was the decision made at the time. We just have to live with it. That allowed Nygaard to continue whatever it is he was doing. And it wasn't until 2010 that CBC's Fifth Estate had their own report on his sexual misconduct. And Nygaard goes and sues the Fifth Estate for criminal libel. This is possible in Canada. It's very rare. But you can go to jail in Canada for journalism. And this, I believe, is still dragging through the courts. And then the, the publication ban on that 2010 episode of the Fifth Estate is still in place. You can't find this report. So that was an occasion where people might have found out about Nygaard and, and maybe he would have gotten shut down. So then it's not until this past February that the next major story about Nygaard finally comes out when the New York Times has this bombshell account. And this will sound very familiar to people following the Jeffrey Epstein case. This guy had his own tropical like kind of resort in the Bahamas. He would uh, lure children there. Um, he had people, agents out procuring teenage girls locally. He said, you know, some of these poor local 
girls are pretty too. Bring them by. There are numerous rape allegations. There's a very complicated story as to how this came to light because he got into this feud with his hedge fund neighbor. And really the origin of this is like the neighbor was mad that Peter Nygaard was illegally harvesting sand to rebuild his beach. And in his efforts to take down Nygaard, he was like, paying some of the accusers, which put a, a, a stink on the whole thing, like maybe the whole thing is, is made up, but this is not the case. And now the Fifth Estate is back, finally reporting the allegations of Jonna Larson 40 years ago, 40 years ago. And, and to me, there's probably going to be movies and docuseries and all sorts of things about the Nygaard case. But to my sensibility, this is a case of journalism thwarted. This is a case of power and the courts being leveraged against the truth, and there are victims because of that. Yeah, it's an extraordinarily kind of clear case of all of those. Every newsroom has cases where a story gets reported up, it's presented to you know the editorial leadership, and the organization decides not to go with it. And you know it's possible to ask questions about whether pressure was brought to bear or whether they were intimidated, too worried about the consequences, and so on. This is an unusual case where the former publisher himself says, yep, that's what happened. You that, know? That's extraordinary, isn't it? Like to actually hear the publisher <laughs> say, oh, yeah, there is a powerful elite in Winnipeg. I mean, I don't I'm, I'm you know, my dad's a Winnipeg guy. I'm sure I, I Winnipeg people are tough. I'm sure the pressure was bad. But the idea that the, that the kingpins of Winnipeg, but the admission of it was kind of amazing to me. And the effect of it is exactly the reason why you don't want to let those pressures win, which is that the guy was apparently able to continue and to expand these you know, hideous, terrible activities unchecked because they decided not to check him. And I just, you know, maybe younger listeners will think that uh, this would not normally have been considered a legitimate story in 1996. 1996 is not that long ago. Mm-hmm. These claims would have been blockbusters, would have been career enders, would have rocked this guy's life and uh, Winnipeg community in 1996 as today. And I can think of no legitimate reason why the publisher blocked publication of that story. If they decided it was up to journalistic standards, if they decided that it was that it that would hold up against scrutiny, then they absolutely should have run it. And I believe everyone in the newsroom would have considered that they should have run it in 1996. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. And of course, first thoughts are to all of these uh, people, these victims uh, of Peter Nygaard. There's a class action suit uh, from 57 women, people who've waited decades for justice. Of course, first thoughts have to go with them and how every institution failed them, including journalism. But I also I I can't help but identify with Catherine Mitchell and Bob McEwen, Catherine Mitchell, of the Winnipeg Free Press and Bob McEwen of CBC, because it wears you. D- I mean, Bob McEwen, like facing criminal life, like, you know, he's going to go to jail for reporting truths uh, for the CBC as a public broadcaster. Catherine Mitchell trying to tell this woman's story, the amount of stress that was put down on them, you know, their own publisher saying this is a sensationalistic story. I'm not going to publish it. And then and then, you know, it's burdensome to carry people's secrets and to feel so impotent that you were not able to do the thing you're supposed to do, which is which is tell the world and raise those voices. I hope that they're getting some satisfaction out of this all coming to light now. Yeah, me too. Paul Wells, that's Shortcuts for today. I had fun. I always have fun when you come on. People, it's never been easier to support the work that we do here to instantly get a golden premium Canada Land feed. You just click on the link in your show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join and it costs you five bucks Canadian a month. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at Canadaland. 
Paul Wells, where can people find you? In McLean's. Check them out in McLean's. Our website is canadalandshow.com where you can listen to the most recent Oppo, which is all about the policy and political implications for women who are being ignored, mothers especially, as we try to deal with the pandemic and uh, accommodations are not being made for them and it's gonna have a major impact. Uh, you can also read our coverage of We Charity, including our recent story on their accounting department and their CFO and his missing credentials. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And please support Canada Land. Mm-hmm.